Hey guys, I'm here with uh, Alex Hormozzi and really excited. Welcome to Driven Channel. I'm really pumped up about this um, interview because uh, me and my wife, we talk a lot about you guys. We're like, damn, usually we're like the young entrepreneurs that are doing good and making money and, and, and everybody's older, you know, yeah. but, but with you guys, we're like, damn, you guys make us feel old. <laughs> so like, I know you're 31, your wife's 29 and you guys have a, an incredible story that reminds us a lot also of our battles like when you start a business you go broke you don't have money you're barely surviving <laughs> and uh, i know you sold businesses for a lot yeah. of money you made some some good money yeah. and now you're a uh, ceo of acquisitions.com um so uh alex uh first of all thank you for being part of this and uh if you could get started with maybe your story of how you started in the entrepreneurship and and, and who is alex hormosi for those that might not know you thank oh, you for being here i know 100 percent. thank you guys for uh for having me um, very excited to be here. And uh, for everybody who's listening or watching, you know, very honored uh, that you'd lend us your time and your attention. Well, I'll do my very best, or I know we will both do our very best to give you a high return on it. Um, so Layla and I, so I was, uh, I was a management consultant right out of college uh, at a boutique strategy firm, which did space, cyber, and intelligence for the military. seems like a completely different life than I live yeah. right now. Um, did that for a few years, didn't particularly enjoy it. Sounded cool at dinner parties, but that was about all it really gave me was a cool dinner party line. So maybe some of you guys are in that same situation where your job sounds cooler on paper yeah. than it does in reality. Um, and then uh, it was kind of, I'll bring this up and it sounds kind of morbid for the first like 60 seconds or two minutes of a, of a podcast. But uh, it was only when I was really contemplating like not living anymore because I hated it so much because I'd done all the decisions I had in my life up to that point because of what I thought my father wanted me to do um for him you know what i mean and so he was an immigrant came here when he th when he was um in his mid-20s mid late yeah. 20s he had me a few years later um and you know, I, you know I always had a lot of respect for that and i wanted to like honor the sacrifice that he had you know coming here with a thousand dollars and building what, what he built for himself just through his education and working hard and so he wanted me you know to be a doctor in his footsteps i decided not to be during college because i was yeah. like i really don't like this <laughs> i really like business better he's like fine then this is the path you have to go do the two years do the mba you know but um it basically came to a decision where i said i, I either have to die to my father or i have to die to myself and so i figured well i might as well be alive and die to him and so that was kind of that was like kind of the turning point for me when i was able to to quit my job and start pursuing what i really wanted to do so i quit my job i drove to Drove across the country from uh, D.C. slash Baltimore all the way to uh, to L.A. Uh, yeah. It was actually Chino Hills. So I was Inland Empire. We were just talking mm -hmm. before this yeah, about yeah. Sam Bakhtiar. So um, I showed up at Sam's doorstep. He uh, had no idea why I was there, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he offered to uh, to like let me into his mastermind, even though I didn't have a gym, um, and kind of like show me the ropes in the beginning. So I immediately, and this is some of the advantages I had, I think, and why I was able to move so quickly. Like if you think about an order of sequence, like I went from having a job straight into a mastermind. Like the first thing I did was I bought into a mastermind because I figured, and this is from the consulting world, the fastest way to learn anything is, is by consulting experts, is by um, learning from people who've already consolidated information for you. Because like, you've got Google. It's like, sure, you have everything that's available to you. Yeah. Um, but trying to pull that together in one place, like sifting that is the hardest part, right? Um, all right, sorry, my ADD was killing me. <laughs> um, and so the, that was the first thing I did. And then from there, um, I started my first gym. I was sleeping on the floor there. Uh, it took me nine months to get it kind of built up and outsourced. And then from there, we opened a new gym every six months uh, and then sold that uh, chain uh, and then retained the IP. And we started flying out doing gym turnarounds. That's when I met Layla. Um, and that was kind of like a brief story of like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And then right after that, I lost everything yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Layla, yeah. I know when you guys met uh, and, and also like I like when you get on a good uh, on a good talk, good story, yeah. just keep going because right. I'm, I'm not an interviewer. Okay. You know, like I, it's like more I'm more excited about this because like you're a business guy. I'm a business yeah. guy. And I just I'm just curious about yeah. like how you did it. What did you do? Yeah. But when you met Layla, I remember yeah. um, you guys got married not because you guys were in love. Yeah. You, it was like a business transaction. Can you talk about that? Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, we talk about it a lot because I think I like our dynamic a lot. Um, and it, it's not normal because most people, and every relationship I had prior to this, it was like, you meet somebody, you feel some chemistry, and then it gets hot and heavy really quickly. Yeah. And then it starts to cool down a little bit. And then you kind of like get into this cruise zone and then you look up and you're like, you know, we actually don't have a lot of things that were in common besides the fact that we're opposite, which is why we attracted yeah, to yeah. begin with. But like, we're opposite. Like you like, 
you know, you vote for this guy, vote for this guy. You know, you like these things, I like these things. Like, it's just, it's just so many differences. And so we had a different experience where, like, we went on our first date and we ended up talking about business for four hours. And I was like, cool. And I didn't, like, have any romantic anything, but I was like, she's cool. Um, and so I felt myself kind of just, like, wanting to see her again. So yeah. I was like, hey, I mean, I remember the next day I was like, hey, I'm working all day. Um, want to come work with me. Like it wasn't a date. I was like, I'm just going to be working at my place or at the library or whatever. And she said, sure. And so then she just like hung out with me and then we were just both worked together after that. And that was kind of like the, the theme of how, like the vibe of how things started is like, whatever I was doing, I just rather do it with her. Um, and so it was much more companionate, uh, rather than like, uh, like love, yeah. like a capital L, you know what I mean? Love relationship. But that, but then I think the, the shared mission and shared values of like, this is what I want to do with my life. She's like, me too. I want to do big shit. And like up to that point, the, the I, I had definitely dated people who wanted to do big things, but like the types of big things they wanted to do were different than the types of things I wanted to do. And so we weren't mission aligned. And so one, and I think that, you know, probably you feel this way too. Like when you want to do big things, like it's rare air, like not a lot of people breathe that air and yeah. what you have to go, what do you have to go through to get there is hard. And I knew that where I wanted to go, not a lot of people would be able to hang um, and that might be from childhood, from whatever, you know what I mean? Whatever it is. But like, I just knew that I was willing to go through a lot of suffering to get there. And she was too. And that was, um, and like the, there were a couple, I'll tell you the two key moments in our relationship that did it for me. But the first one was when I lost everything the second time for me, the first time for her, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I lost everything, um, she, uh, I, I kind of sat her down. I was like, Hey, like, we're cool. Like if you leave right now, like all respect, like we're like, I won't blame you. I will like, we're cool. Yeah. And uh, she was like, no, nah, I'm here. She's like, if, if, if I have to sleep with you under a bridge, I will. And uh, I remember being like, man, that's, that's awesome. Like, that's really cool that she just like was there, even though I gave her like an out card. And then the second time was we really needed this money uh, to come in. And I said, listen, like I have to do, I have to just sell my ass off at this location and you need to go to this gym in Hawaii and you need to crush it. Uh, Cause it costs like 10 grand for her to get there. And it was like about the last 10 grand I had. And she needed to do a hundred thousand in net sales cash collected in 30 days in order for us to like cover all these bills that were coming in from these yeah. other directions. And right before she left, we like took a break. Cause I was like, too, it was, I was just too stressed out of all these different things that were going on. And um, she flew out there and she killed it. And she didn't have to, she wasn't technically associated with me anymore. And she like, she could have just left and be like, I'm just going to go back and just do my own thing, whatever. And, um, and then she, when most people would crumble, she just like stood tall and got harder. And that was when I was like, she can go through everything that I can go through. And so it was like those two instances is when I knew that, like that I was, that she was going to be the person who was going to come with me to where I wanted to go. Do you feel like you have to get to that darkest moment, uh, to become somebody really successful? So like you're you're yeah. you're really successful i see you guys especially with the age um you yeah. guys have done a lot but um like in the beginning i know that there's a lot of times where like you said you don't want to live anymore yeah you're really stressed out uh yeah. and you get down to your last penny yeah do you think that's important for somebody to go through that and come back up to really make it or be in the position where they're going to continue to make it you think you guys you think you could have done it differently without having to go through all that pain Yes and no. So I don't think that suffering is a requisite for success, but I do think that it is very likely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that when, I think what it does is it gives us evidence. Like when you get into hard times, it doesn't change who you are. It gives you evidence of who you are. It just, it, sh it displays, it demonstrates who you are. So some people are like, you know, when the, when the going gets tough, the, the tough, get, you know, the whatever, whatever the saying is, but I think that a lot of times it just reveals our character. It doesn't necessarily create it because it might have already it might have already been there that whole time, and then we just get the environment in which to prove it to ourselves. Yeah. But I think it goes from the man with the opinion to the man with the experience, which uh, L. H. Hardwick said: uh, "No man with an experience is ever at the mercy of a man with an opinion." And so, like somebody could be like, "Oh man, like 2008 wasn't that bad." Like somebody who's younger does, it hasn't gone through it, but like. Yeah. Man with an opinion, man with an experience who went through it, he's never at that guy's mercy. And so like there's some some like soul hardness that I think comes through that because you have evidence in your past of like I have been through worse. 
that being said, I think that you can you can extrapolate any negative experience to give yourself a, a shield against any new negative. So it's like, I'll give you a different example. So let's say you've, you haven't, you're new to business, which a lot of people maybe listening to this are, yeah, yeah. but you might've had a tough upbringing, which a lot of people listening to this probably have, right? Cause a lot of people suffer cause we're kids, right? If you think to yourself like, man, like none of this is nearly as bad as my dad whooping the shit out of me. All of a sudden, it just gives you a very different context of what hard feels like, yeah. right? Or or mom or whatever it is, right? And so, or my brother, it doesn't matter who it is, but the point is, is like, we've gone through hard shit. And I think that what hard feels like is the same, whether it's a business hard or an emotional hard, it feels the same. And so I think if you can take these past experiences that are hard before and extrapolate them onto your current situation, you realize you've been through so much more than this. And then you can look back and say like, to use the Morpheus quote from the matrix, like, I stand here truthfully unafraid, not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. Yeah. And so I think that those hard times give us evidence of who we are. Yeah. And I think it's the stories that we tell ourselves that create, you know, the futures we're going to have. Now, Alex, what do you think if you wouldn't have met Layla? Yeah. And maybe you meet uh, Kyla or somebody else. <laughs> uh, where do you, where do you Kayla, think you are? Right? <laughs> where do you think you are at this moment? Do you think yeah. you're as successful less successful yeah. because let, let me tell you something uh, the reason why i asked is because me and yeah. Syl are really different yeah like i'm i'm like the visionary the recruiter yeah. the sales guy and she's the operator so she operates everything like like yeah. um if we have an event like if she didn't have me i yeah. we wouldn't have any people yeah. but if i didn't have her we, we would have people and we would lose all the people yeah. because <laughs> i don't know how to operate plan yeah. organize I'm, I'm horrible at that so yeah. like my job is to bring in agents and yeah. her job is to keep the agents yeah i don't know if that, that makes any sense do totally you, you, it's the same dynamic yeah we have the identical dynamic between Layla and I. But how, do, how does that work? And, and, and where, do you, where do you think you would have been without Layla? So, um, of course, since Layla is in, in the background of the audience, I would be homeless under that bridge. That's what I would, I would just be there just without anything. Um, no, but we've, we actually have this conversation a lot. Like if I were not in her life, she would probably just find someone who's similar to me and yeah. to have find a complimentary skill set. And like, if she were not in my life, I would probably, like the business requires these functions to occur. And whether it's mixed between me and Layla or Layla's, go cause like we talk about like, what if Alex dies? Cause we, you know, we think about like, you know, what happens after that same, yeah. same scenario. Well, she might have to find two or three people to do the functions that I'm doing. And so I probably can't find one Layla, but I might be able to find like two or three people who can fill the holes that she leaves yeah. to make sure that the functions get done. And so it's like, so why Combinator has, has put out a lot of research on the fact that like three founders is the ideal amount of people for a business. And I think that that just happens to be like, there are kind of buckets of activity that must occur in order for a business to be successful. And it's just more difficult for a single founder to do that on their own, where all the hats learn all the things or find, find and incentivize someone who's good enough to be like owner level of give a shit. I don't know, like the cussing words on this, but like, fine yeah, <laughs> the owner level of give a shit in a company when it's early days. And yeah. so I think that's why it gets so hard for people to get going because especially if you're a solo, you own hundred percent, et cetera. If it's just you, like we both have the advantage of two owners just right off the bat. And I remember when we were coming up and competing against other people, I always used to think like, even if I'm toe to toe with this guy, I was like, I've also got her and he doesn't. And I was like, it's two on one. Yeah. Like with every, yeah. every business, you know, competitive space I felt, I was like, it's two on one. Like we always come to the, with an advantage. And so I think that if you can get that, that's that founding team in place of talented people who, who have complementary skill sets. And for anybody who's watching, like the three kind of big ones, and you alluded to it was like, you've got your acquisition side, which is how the promoter, who's going to bring people into the door. You've got the, the operation side, the, the product side, right? Uh, which is what are we going to, how are we going to fulfill the promises we made on the front end? Right. And then the third one keeps the other two out of jail, which is, you know, HR, finance, yeah. legal, IT, yeah, yeah. <laughs> taxes, you know, accounting, all that stuff. And so those are kind of the three elements that we see within, within the business. You've got your product, you've got your acquisition, and then you've got all the stuff to keep yourself out of prison. Well, what is the biggest lesson you think you learned? Um, and do you think maybe if you would have known what you know now, you could have been with more money, earlier if, yeah. if you, is there one big lesson that if you yeah. can go back you'll change yeah it took me it took me five years to learn focus it took me five years maybe 10 depending on what, what do you mean I, about focus picking one opportunity and, and and ruthlessly going after that one thing i think a lot of people i mean me yeah um i get so like i get excited 
I'm op- you know, I love opportunity. I love seeing the unseen, seeing where, where things could come together. Because I see your mind going like, like I could tell like from far, like when you walked in the, fir- the first time right here and we met back in the uh, Brett Lee's event. Yeah. But, but um, you, you just, I could tell that you have so many ideas going around <laughs> your head. I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> you seem like you're thinking like a hundred things at once. Yeah. And so like you talked about focus. Yeah. Um, does that also mean how you manage your time? Because I know in the beginning yeah. part, you give everybody your time. And then after you start growing, mm-hmm. then you stop giving people time. And then the, some people just get uh, insulted yeah. and they get mad. And, and yeah. h- how, do you, how do you approach that? So two, se- so two separate. One is one kind of like the networking and people thing. And the other side was like the business focus side. Yeah. So on the business focus side, um, it's, it's really, it's accepting the fact that there are always many, many 10 out of 10 opportunities. So the first thing I did was I was picking bad opportunities to go after. You know what I mean? Like, you know, opening a dry cleaning store or rather, I'll, I'll walk up the opportunity ladder. This might be interesting for everyone. So, like, opportunity level number one is that you're working at a dry cleaning store, yeah. right? Like, and you're just, you're cleaning the clothing, right? That's, like, lowest level opportunity. You're training time for dollars. You have zero leverage. One level above that is you're managing at that store. So, now you, in, you in some way, have some leverage, but you're not still owning, but you are, you're operating, right? Mm-hmm. Level above that is you own the dry cleaning store, Okay, that's cool, but your leverage is you got five mile, you know, radius of people that you can serve out of the entire world, mm. and the only level of le- of leverage you have there is labor. That's all you have is you have leverage over other people's time. The level above that is you franchise or you you sell other people your business model for how to do it. Now all of a sudden you've got capital and you've got leverage. You've got other people's money and other people's time. So all of a sudden that thing can go from being a maybe a one million dollar opportunity to a hundred million dollar opportunity, right? And then all of a sudden, if you aggregate franchises, right now you're at a billion dollar. So it's like each of these things we, we inch, and if let's say you created a software that made the whole thing faster, it's like now you're using code and that, and then you associate like Kylie Jenner's brand with like Kylie clean, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so then you're using media to get even more leverage on the opportunity. And so um, learning about leverage was the thing that took me a long time to understand in terms of what boat I'm in. So I'll, I'll give you the quote from Warren Buffett, but he said, I'll give you the full quote. So he had his closest friend from Columbia Business School who went to school with him. They were really smart, really hardworking, liked each other a lot. When they finished, one, his best buddy went to, to do into steel business, manufacturing steel, and then he started Berkshire Hathaway. You know, 30, 40 years later, this guy, the steel business is a tough business, yeah. right? He didn't, I mean, he's like, he made an okay living. He's like, but he didn't do anything really exceptional. And then Warren built Berkshire Hathaway. And he said, and that's when I learned that it wasn't about how hard you row, but what boat you're in. And so there's a lot of really, really hardworking people out there who are really smart. They're just not, the thing that they're missing is ignorance of opportunity, is ignorance of leverage. And so if you can get into a better leverage opportunity the same time or same effort or same intelligence can yield you a 10X, 20X, 1000X return, which is hard to conceptualize, but still true. Mm-hmm. And so understanding the leverage of the opportunity, and then from a character perspective, understanding that I have to pick a high leverage opportunity and I must stick with it for an unreasonable amount of time. I have to just keep doing it. And the, the outsized returns, the compounding of the opportunity comes from the depth of the experience, which comes through repetition. And so a lot of people get, you know, whether a mile wide, an inch deep, rather than a, a mile deep, an inch wide. And most times that kind of depth of experience is what gives you the compounding outsized returns in the longer haul. And so I think if I, if I had known one, how to pick the right opportunity and two said, okay, if I did just this thing for the next 10 years, it would be unreasonable for me not to be a billionaire then nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. So even if somebody's like, dude, I've got this new tech thing, it's gonna be huge. I could say, totally understand. But if I do just the thing I'm doing right now, I'll get to a billion, which is right now right. the current goal, right? Yeah. And so that's it. Like, and I could have 20 other things. Like, dude, we gotta do this building together. Like, I'll bet you I could make money on that. But if I do nothing else besides this one thing that I'm focused on, I will get to a billion. And so everything that is not that is a distraction from that. Yeah. What, what do you think keeps people from not doing that because like there's so many opportunities that that, that come up and yeah. especially now with uh how much you're known now a yeah. lot more than before right yeah you probably get a ton of opportunities yeah. or people pitch you like hey i got this i'm gonna make yeah. you we could make millions with this yeah um but why do you why do you think let's just say scott yeah why can scott just focus on mortgages yeah. or real estate why does he have to do events yeah. why does scott have to go out there and do like this other side business and this yeah. other side business and then they just get confused diluted uh, yeah and, and then they don't when they could just go out there and make millions in real yeah. estate or mortgages yeah what's what, what do you think is is 
what gets people to What's do that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> yeah, because I, I have, I, I, I yeah. you know, I lead a, a lot of yeah. uh, people, and then I find them like, hey, you know what? It's cool doing the little uh, swing and yeah. dance, uh, TikTok, and and yeah. but but what is that? Like, yeah. focus on what you're doing. Make more calls. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's human behavior, and so the the way that um, we describe this is local versus global benefit, and so a simple example is like. If I want to have a six pack, right? Why does Sarah go grab a piece of cake rather than grabbing a piece of chicken breast? Because the local benefit, the acute benefit of having a piece of cake is higher in the small, in the local region. Yeah, yeah. But the global benefit for her body is lower. And so humans in general will tend to optimize for local benefit rather than global. And the people who can simply optimize for global benefit, for their system-wide benefit, are the ones that get the biggest compounding returns over the long haul. It's the same thing as in a business setting. Why don't the sales guys leave notes in the CRM so that when the customer service rep or the, or the onboarding rep can see the notes to you know have a way better experience, have you know way better ascension rates, way less churn, drop out, all these other great metrics that would improve the overall business? Because the local pain right of writing the notes in is harder than not doing it, but doing it gives the global benefit that is worth it, right? Yeah. And an interesting one from an operational perspective, for every, because like, I'm sure you've also had the flip side of people who over-operationalize things, they over-process oh, yeah. shit and then it gets too yeah. hard, is that the point of process is to give a global benefit. And so you can measure, is there a global benefit from this thing? If we're having people do lots of stuff, but it doesn't have a global benefit, where the global benefit does not outweigh the cost, like for example, Let's say that there, one of the benefits is if we could have people walk through a 20 step sales page thing uh, so they could finish all of that without the finance department hopping on. Sure, that might be a benefit globally, but the global loss might be that we lose sales by like 70% because yeah. it's such a pain in the ass, yeah. right? And so you have to look at you know global cost versus global benefit on any kind of initiative. And so to, to get back to the why does, why does Johnny have a bunch of side hustles yeah. is because the local perceived benefit of a shiny object sounds exciting. Even though globally we could make a very easy argument that if you took all that time, all that attention, all that wasted energy and just put it into the thing that is this main vehicle, you get outsized returns because the thing that Johnny doesn't understand, and this is alluding to the lesson that you, you, you mentioned yeah. earlier, is that like all the gains come at the end. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so, so many guys are like, they're doing 80% effort in three things where if you just did that extra 20 for the one thing, yeah. you would get more on that 20 than you would on everything else. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And so it's, it's, a, it's a diminishing marginal return with an outsized absolute return. And so I'll, I'll give a different example to drive this up. Sorry, I'm just for like no, loading the examples. If I'm a, a runner and I'm in the Olympics and I ran I, and I train and I train and I train, the amount that an extra, you know, two hours a day of training does for me, the amount extra speed I get is might be this much, right? The last two hours compared to the first two hours, I might get this much extra. But this much extra is the difference between first and fourth. And so what's the absolute difference of that marginal return? It's everything. Yeah. And so I think that when, we, when we're trying to compete in the space, we have to understand like you are going to have less return on your time in an opportunity, but the absolute return of being that much better than everyone else makes all the difference in the world. If you're a really good sales trainer versus the best sales trainer, you'll make 10 times more money being number one. Yeah. And that's the absolute versus marginal difference. And, and Alex, when you guys were growing and yeah. you guys made a certain amount of money where, where you never made that money before, Yeah. you guys are both good looking, really good shape. Uh, you guys look like models. <laughs> when, when, when people, did you ever have people em having envy towards you? Like when you started growing, maybe you had your your, sec your right hand person or your left hand person, and then they're like, wait a minute, if they could do it, I can do it. Maybe I'm gonna go out there and start something and be their competitor. Did you ever deal with people like that? So to, so peeling the pieces apart, there's the envy side and then people you know, copying and, and do things like that. Yes, I think the last time I counted, we had over 20 people who had worked for me who tried to start similar co companies. So yes to that to that question. In terms of envy, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know what their their primary motivation was. It might have just been like wanting to do more for themselves. Like, and that's and that's fine. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But at the same time, like now we will compete, and like and I will do everything I can to win. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, are any of those companies bigger than the company that we had? No. Are all of them together not bigger than a quarter of what we had? No. 
is, is, there, is there something that you guys do to keep to to maximize uh, all the people that you have so that yeah that's that was a good lesson that, that from what you were asking earlier about like any lessons that I learned I think that um, letting other like I was so early on it was just like every dollar has to be mine you know what I mean I think that giving more slices of the pie to people you get you get so much more you net like Jeff Bezos right now owns 10% of Amazon, yeah. right? Elon owns 17% of Tesla. Warren Buffett owns 38% of Berkshire Hath or uh, uh, his yeah, stock, yeah. whatever. And so these, these huge guys understood a concept, which is like the more money you can make other people, the more money you make, even though if the, the pie is not 100% yours. And it took me, that was, that's a lesson that took me too long to understand because if you give other people slices of the pie, then you can gain your time back disproportionately. And so it's like, it'd be better to have 51% of a hundred businesses, you know what yeah. I mean? Than a hundred percent of, you know what I mean? And because you can just give the opportunity away. But the problem is that everyone thinks that the, the boat they're in is the only boat they'll ever be in for the rest of their lives. Not to say you shouldn't focus on that boat, but I'm saying like, we think so small. And are you talking about equity wise or also compensation wise, both? Yeah, but yeah. I just mean in general, just like however you slice up the pie. Yeah. You know? now, now getting back to the whole fitness part, I heard somewhere like I don't believe it, but maybe you could yeah. you, you could convince me otherwise. But but I heard you say that you work out twice a week, uh, and and that um, that mm -hmm. you that you have a way of eating where you get all your food in, in the beginning. And is that is, yeah. is there a science that you mastered? It's the end. So it's it's the it's the end of the day mostly. But um, but yeah. So there's there's. In order to have there's minimum effective dose right, um, and then there's. MRV, which is maximal recoverable volume. All right, so those are the two extremes from a training perspective. So the amount that it takes to maintain the amount of muscle mass you have is typically significantly less than most people expect. And the amount that it takes to grow and to get an adaptation, and then the maximum amount that you can do uh, and recover from is usually much further down the volume spectrum than people expect. And most people are just in between those two things. So they're above the amount to maintain but not enough to adapt. So like they're just doing more work than is necessary to just basically stay the same. Yeah. Right. And I think that that happens with a lot of systems in terms of like, let's say you're working on sales. It's like, they, they read their sales script every morning. So they're enough to have to maintain. They do the, the minimal amount to maintain, but maybe they do a little bit more, but it's not enough to drive adaptation to drive growth. Right. And so with, from a, I mean, the fitness example works for life in general, but um, if I want to grow, then I will train like, 90 minutes six days a week so every day and i'll train maybe even two hours a day and i will force the muscle to grow like you will either break or you will grow because there's no way you can stay the same given the amount of punishment i'm putting on this muscle right yeah. and it's not about even the intensity it's like if i do legs every day for six days straight my legs will grow if your, your arms are small and you train arms every single day your arms will grow i promise you and so then what happens is if I know that I have the work ethic to do this level of volume, then it comes to, okay, what exercise, not to get too tactical here, but like what exercise selection can I do that does not give me joint pain? Because if you do that much volume, joint pain can start coming an issue. So then it's about finding the exercises that you are really biomechanically advantaged for that give you the least amount of stress or rotating between two to three of those throughout that six day cycle. So you might go like exercise ABC and then ABC for that six days. And that way you get a little bit of variety on the joint um, while still maximizing the amount of volume you do. That's the training side. The, the, the food side is, I know that you've, you've alluded to the video that I had, but it's just calories and protein is pretty much all you have to do, which is why we eat dessert every night. And yeah, I see that. <laughs> we, we do that because like, if you could have rice and potatoes uh, or just like a big ice cream sundae, I'd rather have a big ice cream sundae, but that's me. Uh, are, are you still on the clean uh, drinking uh, diet or, or do you drink? Uh, we do not drink much. Um, I would say like Layla has one drink and I will have some of it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's definitely not with the intention of getting drunk. It is, um, cause I know I saw a video where you posted uh, you didn't drink for a while. Yeah. yeah. It, it, how, how did not drinking yeah. for a while, how did, um, and, and how does your, uh, health in general, like yeah. staying in shape, working out, how does that, uh, contribute to your business's successes? I think at that time when I stopped drinking, it was really important. I think that now it would, it would matter less because the things that I was, I would drink, I'd like, I never had a drinking problem. You know what I mean? Um, it was just like, I would be, you know, I'd be stressed from work or whatever. And I would just like want to have 
a shot or two at the end of the day or three shots or four shots to just like take the edge off. Right. Um, but the thing is, is like when I, when I forced myself to stop drinking, I did it cold Turkey because I was like, what's the point? It's just like, if you're going to do it sooner or later, might as well do it sooner. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped drinking the day that we decided to without really any, any prompt. And then what happened is for the next six months, I was like, I would feel this like itch. Like whenever I was stressed, like, man, I could really use a drink and, but I couldn't. And so it forced me to confront the things that I wasn't confronting, which is like decisions that were unmade, hard conversations I needed to have, relationships that needed to be cut out or brought in, depending on, you know, what they were. And so it basically, I had all these unresolved loops that I needed to close. And then once I closed all those loops, once I closed all those loops, my desire to drink uh, went down dramatically. And then when I did decide to drink two and a half years later, you know, it wasn't like, ah, you know, I had to like, you know, guzzle down yeah, five yeah. bottles of liquor because I wasn't drinking from a place of stress. I was just, I was like, okay, things are good. And so we're in the same place now where as long, I think as long as you don't drink to, to run away from anything, yeah, 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 then I think it's, it's much less likely that you'll do it in excess. Yeah. But most people do it to yeah. escape. And I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any fears? Uh, probably lots. I haven't thought about them lately. Um, uh, let me think. Probably the, this, the, the main human ones, you know, uh, fear of failure, I suppose. I think a lot, a lot of that is dis, has, has become less, but it might just be because I have all this evidence that I haven't failed. So I don't know. Um, but I think that if I were to, like, if all that were to be removed from me today or tomorrow, um, I think I'd be okay. Do you ever uh, feel like a fear of being broke again? Um, and, and let me explain a little bit more. Yeah. Because, uh, for example, you guys live a really, um, like, a simple yeah. way of living. Like, you, you, I yeah. know you, had a, you bought a car because... Because <laughs> yeah. uh, Brad. Yeah, yeah. It was Brad. And, and, and the, so you got a Bentley, then, yeah. then you sold it, then you yeah. sold everything. Yeah. You, you, uh, you got your cash put yeah. aside, yeah. and you got your money put away. Yeah. Your, your means of, of living are not that high. Yeah. Um, but then I think about, because I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. But then I think about, like, what if I die tomorrow, and, yeah. and, and I didn't... I don't drive what I want to drive. I don't yeah. travel the way I want to travel. How, how do you process that? On, on how are you going to spend your money? It's on? a great question. Yeah, um, I think that to what you said, like drive what I want to drive, live where I want to live, fly where I want to fly. We do that. I just don't want to use someone else's drive what they want to drive. And so I realized for me when I had the Bentley that it didn't make any difference in my life. Like I didn't. I did it because I thought it was cooler what other people would think. Like. You know, I mean, I literally did it because Brad was like, dude, go buy one. I was like, all right, fine, I went buy one. And it didn't, it didn't do anything for me. Yeah. And so, like, what are the things that, that we find valuable? Like, we enjoy going out to dinner. So we, we've gone out to dinner every night for ever. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't used our kitchen. Um, and, and I like that. You know what I mean? And, like, when we go out, we get whatever we want. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. doesn't matter what, like, we get whatever we want. I get two entrees. Last night I had two entrees, three desserts. Like, I just like that, and it's cool. Like, I enjoy that. Um, you, know, we, we, you know, we fly private a lot. Uh, because we enjoy that uh, and we get returns from that. Um, we bought, like, I'll just say a big number worth of big homes uh, recently after having sold everything. And then, you know, as soon as we got there, we we're like, oh, I don't want to deal with all the, I don't want the, the housekeeper, the AV guy, the, the, the lawn care, the pool guy, the, the decorator, the, like all of this stuff. And I was like, I just don't give a shit. And so we have like a 3,000 square foot, you know, apartment that we can lock and leave and go wherever we want. And so I think that the point of money is to buy us options. And so I want to have the option to work because if I can't work, it's just as bad as having to work. And if I want to go fly private, I want to have that option to do it. I don't want to have to do it. And so I think it's for, for us, we've, we've optimized towards optionality rather than, than quote freedom. I've always said, um, and I, I've always screamed to the world, I have this yeah. or I'm going to have this before I have it. Yeah. And then it becomes a reality. Yeah. And maybe not, maybe I don't reach the number. Yeah. Maybe I don't reach 50 million, yeah. but I reach 36 million. Yeah. And, but I, I've always been like that. And that keeps me pushed. It, it, it motivates me. Yeah. And uh, you talked about private, private flying. Yeah. I never imagined I would fly private. Yeah. Like I never imagined it. And then I, I screamed to the world, like, we're going to fly private. I screamed yeah. to the world, we're going to buy a jet. Yeah. We haven't bought the jet yet, yeah. but, but we, but we will. Yeah. But, but um, when I flew private the first time with Sil, yeah. And it felt, it's just a different 
of amazing oh, feeling. Yeah, I, I, I know what you like. Because you know where you spend your money. You yeah. spend your money on things you love. Yeah. So like flying private. Can, can you talk, Has did that change anything in your life? Or how was your first experience flying private? Um, it was just, it was just, I've said this before, like it just transforms what is normally a painful experience into one that can be enjoyable. Like going from economy to first class, I don't think makes the flight enjoyable. I think it just makes it less painful. Mm -hmm. But I think flying uh, private does make it an enjoyable experience. That being said to what you were saying earlier, about like casting it out in the world and trying to make it into reality. Like, this is me just throwing it out there. Yeah. I think you would be just as successful if you didn't do it. Because I think it's who you are. Mm -hmm. Like you are going to win because winners win. And like that is innate. And so if someone put duct tape on your mouth and took away your social media, you'd still fucking kill it. And so, you know, like on the flip side, like they've seen people who set really big goals and then they go after them and that's what drives them. And then you can also set goals that you never miss and you always keep over delivering on that, that incremental goal. I think either way, the winners win because of the activities that they do that drive the result. And yeah. so I think you would, I'm less spiritual about my, about winning. Yeah, yeah. Are there certain traits that you see? Like when you see somebody, yeah. um, can you tell like in five minutes if, if they have what it takes to win big or, or does it take time for you to analyze a person? Do you know a lot of people are yeah. full of shit? Yeah. I think talking to people, you get a you get a vibe for how, you know, like how sharp they are, some level of character. I mean, there's the whole like thinking fast and slow, like you can make, you know, yeah. 30. I mean, because I, I used to know from selling and you've done a lot of sales too, like, when someone walks in the door, I usually had a pretty good idea of whether I was going to close them or not before they even like started talking. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. just start seeing patterns over and like this person, I know how I'm going to, ta- you know, what angle am I going to come from to like, lock, you know, unlock this. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't want to sound um, arrogant. Like I, I can just, I can, I can read everyone, but I think it's when you get these unique pairings of people, like what, cause I was trying to think of like, what is, what is it factor? What is like X factor? Like, what is it, what makes someone special? What is, why do some people raise, get raised up, right? And I think it's when we have patterns we don't recognize. And so for example, if um, like, like if you look at this outfit, right? Yeah. A lot of times in my videos, I'm wearing a wife beater and I look like I'm in a basement. Right? Like yeah, just yeah. being real, right? I was going to go there in a bit. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I think people have an expectation of what I'm going to sound like, whatever my level of intelligence is, whatever level of success they are expecting, and then and then it's, it's not met. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when people can, and I think that those patterns where people, what happens is people are like, wait a second, what happened here? And then all of a sudden the brain goes into learning mode because normally it's like pattern recognition, pattern recognition. And then you don't actually have to consciously think because it's just all uh, unconscious. Like you're just, uh, I know what that person is. I know what they're about because people usually grab their identities off the shelf. They say, oh, I'm going to be a country boy. And then they just adopt the country boy outfit. Or I'm going to be the, influ- the you know, Instagram influencer avatar, right? And then they put that, put that outfit on and they believe those things, they do those things, and, and then they become just like everybody else. And so I think a big part of kind of like the quote authenticity is like everybody has had a unique experience, but they don't express that. And so they just conform. And so if like there, I think if you can, if you have true alignment of what you really deeply believe and what you say and what you do and how you act, then that is the authenticity. But I think most people are afraid of doing it because they're afraid of being rejected. And so it's so much safer to pull an identity off the shelf dress like a goth, dress yeah. like a punk, dress like a corporate dude, dress like the real estate guys, yeah. right? Rather than just have something that's a little bit different. And that's what I think gives people pause. And I think that's what makes, that's what gives people, you know, it factor, or X factor. Yeah. Speaking of that, the, the branding, because you're a genius marketer and, and uh, you, I, you know exactly Thanks. what you're doing. I, 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 <laughs> I, I could tell you know exactly what you're doing. Like there's always a the strategy, like, because yeah. I think the same way. Yeah. There's always a reason why you're doing something. So, like, for example, like, let's say if you look like me, like, if you buzz your hair and, yeah. and you start wearing, dressing like me, and then I switch it up and I start yeah. looking like you, <laughs> I, I, I dress the same way, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, I get a bit bigger and yeah. stuff. Um, do, do you think people are going to be like, wait a minute, that's not Albert, wait a minute, that's not Alex. Uh, do you think it's important to have a look that separates you and that gives you that unique identity? I think how you dress is a part of your identity, whether you like it or not. Even even someone who like, I mean, candidly probably dresses like me, it's like I might be trying to communicate something which is like 
I'm dressing for comfort and function, yeah. function matters more to me than form. Like that would be a value that I'm communicating with how I dress. It's also true. Now, if, it, if, if that weren't true, then it would be silly for me to dress in a way that would communicate that. Like Layla probably dresses the exact opposite of me. She usually dresses it like her, her outfits probably cost more than our rent every month. Um, and uh, <laughs> every day. <laughs> um, but like, because for her, that communicates something else, which for her is like, I, I am excellent. Everything I have is always dialed in, like from every, every aspect of what I'm doing, like was, was, was curated, was thought of. And I'm here to, pr to present my best self for the day, for the opportunity for everybody in the room. Yeah. And I, and I want to respect and honor them by how I, how I show up. Not that I don't feel that way. I just do it differently. You know what I mean? But, but so I think people like you because because of the way you yeah. look. Like yeah. it's, it's just you have that look. And Seal's the same way. She always has to be ready. Her yeah. nails, her eyelashes. She needs yeah. to put up. And and she's the one because I, I I dress. We don't dress that much different. Yeah. Like I'm pretty casual. But I used to dress more casual, and she's the one that forced me to like, hey, you, you can't look that, um, you can't look that casual when yeah. when you run a, a mortgage company or yeah. a, business, a real estate. So she got me to looking a bit more professional. Yeah. But, but this is me. Like yeah. we have trainings on Tuesdays, Wednesdays. Yeah. I'm dressed like this. I dig that. I, I I don't when when I you know sometimes people expect you because you're the owner or whatever yeah. title you have. They expect you to be in the suit and the tie. Yeah. And I I, I don't like it. I, yeah. I'm comfortable like this too. Yeah. Is that one of the main reasons why you do it comfortable? It's not the main, the main reason is because it's just what I genuinely, That's who you are. I am comfortable. Yeah, I am comfortable. Yeah. Like I, we, this is what I wear. I go to the gym with this. I go out to dinner with this. I go to, this is just how I dress. Yeah. Um, and like, all right, we're, I'll go deep on this with you for a second. So I just uh, bought 40 pairs of white tank tops um, to figure out what was the best white tank top. Um, I bought uh, probably 25 pairs of barefoot shoes to figure out which was the most comfortable when I worked out, which was the easiest that I could put on or off, which was the one that didn't bother my foot when I, because we walked like two hours a day. Um, and so putting all those things together so I could pick the right one so that I just don't have to think about it ever again. And so, so like in terms of, that's for me because that's just like, I tend to operate that way. Like when I would, I used to eat the same sandwich every day and Layla used to joke about it because like I had a bagel with this protein cream cheese and lox that was low fat lox because the whole meal was like 100 grams of protein and she saw me every day experiment with a different way of eating it which is like okay i'm going to put the lox the cream cheese and the thing and i'm going to toast it and i'll do glop glop and then take a bite the other way is like i put the cream cheese on and and the salmon on and do that another way is i chopped it all chopped all the salmon up so it was mush so i didn't have to like have pieces that i'd pull off because you know like half the sandwich is missing because yeah, you, yeah. you like got a piece and so it's like just continuing to think like, is there a better way I can do this? And I think that like we all have these kind of innate questions. Tony Robbins talks about this, which like we have this like unstated question that we we ask all the time. I think he says his is like, can I make this better? Um, and when I was at the Tony Robbins event, I was like, I wonder what my my question is that like the one innate question you repeat over and over again. Um, and I think mine is like, how can I use this? And his was like, how can I make this better? For me, like, it's so it was like, if I, you know, if I meet, and it probably sounds really utilitarian. If I meet someone, I'm like, how can I use this? Um, which probably sounds bad. But like, I think that's what it, like, if I have a bad situation, I'm like, how can I use this? I think it also saves you a lot of time, right? When you just, yeah. you know, you're going to wear the same thing. Exactly. Time, eat the same thing. 100%. And that. so that's, how can I use an outfit? Well, this outfit is optimized for working out. I can change my temperature really easily because if it's too cold in here, I can roll and button. And if it gets hot, I can roll it up. If it gets way too hot, I can take it off and I'm just in a beater, right? I can do the workouts with this. And I can, if I button it up and go out, I can go walk into any restaurant. If I take these off because these are not sandals, because I've gone to the nicest restaurants, if I put my sport mode on, no one stops me, <laughs> right? Um, four wheel drive. Uh, and so like, anyways, all that to say, I think it, this represents probably a lot of the values that I have in terms yeah. of like, I've thought of all of these things for me of what is convenient, what is functional, what is comfortable. And then this is the end result of that. Uh, on a quick, quick questions on the yeah. 100 grams of protein, can your yeah. body process that at one sitting or is, or cause I heard that yeah. you could only process like 30, 40 grams at yeah. once. So 100 grams of protein is good. You get it out, out of the way. It's not that, so there's a nuance to that. There's a nuance to it. You can't do 100 grams of protein. Uh, it's, it's 30 to 40 per hour, but you would eat 100 and you'd process the first 30 to 40 in the first hour. And then you process the next 30 to 40 the next hour. And then mm. like, it's in your gut the whole time. Yeah. So. You can, I mean, it, it, like thinking that that would limit your protein intake because you have to space it out throughout the day would be like saying, 
a caveman isn't going to get his protein if he, if he kills an animal and then eats 200 grams of protein in one sitting because he's fucking starving, that he only eats th the 30 grams the other 170 are thrown out. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's just, you're going to get the first 30 to 40 now, and then in an hour you get another 30 to 40, just like, and so you have nutrients that are go going through your system. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, Alex, going to your uh, work, uh, yeah. uh, where you work from, like mm -hmm. the, the uh, is it a closet? Yeah. It's a closet, and you and you always have no strips. What are, yeah. are those no strips? For, do they make you smarter? Or what, <laughs> what, what are those? What's special about those? I, no strips? I've like I've had two operations on my nose. So I can't breathe too well on my nose, yeah. um, and so that just like it just it just you know keeps it keeps it open for oh, me. Got it. Um, which is why I wear them, and I I because I, if I don't, I do this all day long, mm. which I hate doing. So it just keeps it open. Um, that was a no strip thing, and then the I I like the being in the windowless closet because if I have a like I love views to look at but if I look at views while I'm working I will stare out into space for you know oh, that makes hours sense. and yeah. then I'm like oh where am I and then 25 minutes went by so if I have this like a like I'm just very scattered I think by nature and so I try and con control as many environmental uh conditions as I can yeah when I met you, you had a long talk. It was like, mm -hmm. I think you spoke yeah. for like two hours, yeah. right? Because I, I, I didn't know you, right? So, yeah. so I see you speaking and, and yeah. I'm there and I'm like 10, 15 minutes in and, I'm, and, and then it's like 30 minutes in and then I'm like, damn, he's, uh, he's still on. Yeah. So, so, so I'm like, and, and, and you're, you're like a lot about value. Yeah. So you're just, you're, you're, you're talking about the boring stuff. Not, yeah. not in a bad way, but that's yeah. the stuff that people need to listen to. Yeah. But people, you know, people get, uh, they, they want the entertainment and all that yeah. stuff. Uh, but I, I stepped out, got a drink, came back in, and it's like an hour and 15, you're still there. And, and then it goes on and on. And then I see, I met you after, uh, yeah. when you came out and we're, we're at the bar. But um, my question is um, on, the, on social media. Yeah. You, you got into social media not too long ago, right? Because yeah. you, you weren't that known before. Yeah. And I think, was it eight months ago or a little bit more? 18 months is when I made my first YouTube video. Okay. So in 18 months, you just blew up and got a bunch of followers, yeah. got verified. Was there, was that your priority that you wanted to do or did you have a game plan on that or, or how'd you do that? Yeah, um, so there were there were a couple of things. So Dean Graciosi, who's Tony Robbins' right-hand man, who's become a- I was a, with him, I know him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's become a close friend. Um, I asked him, you know, is fame worth it? Because I, I was like, I was very big on the like, just be rich and anonymous. Like I liked just yeah. being rich and anonymous. Yeah. And he, um, he said, you know, Alex, I get people who send me weird messages and threats and threaten my family. He said, but if that's the price I have to pay to make the impact I want to have, I'd pay it. I pay it every day of the week. And we said that it really hit me because I was like, man, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to stay in this hole and not be known because I, because I was kind of shunning all that. And he's like, but if you want to make the impact, you want to help the people that you say you want to help, like you have to become known. And so that was kind of like one of the big things that, that, that started me on the path. That was probably the last push that, that got me into like, all right, I'll start making content and whatnot. And then from a business perspective, um, you know, we're looking for internet businesses that are doing, you know, 3 million to 30 million a year um, to, you know, take a, a meaningful stake in so we can help scale them. Um, and so that's what acquisition.com is. And so um, the best way to do that type of structure is to have inbound deal flows, to have people see stuff and then decide to walk towards you. Whereas the rest of my companies I've always built off of paid ads, affiliates, um, uh, you know, cold calling, manual outbound, things like that. And so, but I knew with this process, you know, going, getting a proprietary deal flow structure set up with trust at the onset where we've already provided value, we've already helped someone 3X or 10X their business before they start working with us. It just, it just speeds up the process so much more and yeah. we operate from shared trust from the beginning and it just makes for what I would hope, you know, what I what I hoped, and now I, I I can say is true, a much more enjoyable experience for both people, and it makes the diligence much shorter, and so it just makes for an overall more efficient uh, growth process. And also because we we come in as a minority partner with these companies, like I have no legal strong arm. I can't say I'm going to kick out the CEO. It's his it's his company, and so it all has to be from a position of like influence and trust. And so, like, recently we just pulled the stats on the portfolio, but, like, the average company that we've worked with um, increases their revenue by 80% and, their, and triples their profit within the first eight months. It's pretty cool. Um, but you can only do that if someone trusts you to, like, make major changes in the business. And, like, I still have to have some calls with them and be like, it's okay. Yeah. We're going to increase this price or we're going to change this continuity. We're going to eliminate this product line. And if, if, if it was a traditional kind of like private equity or, or family office relationship, 
they would probably be much more resistant to those things. And so all of this branding stuff um, has the function of, you know, generating uh, inbound companies for us. But then also if we zoom way, way, way out, um, I like the idea of just helping a lot of people for free without really selling anything. You spend a lot of money on ads right now? I spend zero dollars on ads. Zero. Zero. And you give a lot of value and you have that, that uh, phrase where you say, I have nothing to sell you. Yeah. Was that, is, is that a strategy or, or, or is that, is that it happened just- on accident. Yeah, huh? it happened on accident. Well, we, yeah. I was really frustrated because people were like, this guy's going to sell us something. I was like, I have nothing to sell you. I was like, go to the website. What can you, what can you buy? There's nothing yeah. to buy. Um, and so, you know, cause we're, we're, we're an investment company. Like that's what we do. So we, we buy into companies, you know, we're technically a private equity company. And so that's what we do. So if people were like, where, when's the $10,000 course coming out? I was like, it's not like, here's what you would get for the $10,000 course. And I'll just give it to you and you can just consume it and crush it. And the idea is the, the strategy behind the business is get as many people as I possibly can into the world, help as many of them as I possibly can with the best stuff out there. And then the people who are hyper executors will self-select because they can execute without handholding. And then they will, they will, you know, seek us out and say, yeah. Hey, I've used all your stuff. We three extra sales, we 10 extra profits, whatever it is. And like, now I want to go from, you know, 5 million to 50 million. I want to go from 10 million to, you know, hundred million, whatever it is. So wrapping up Alex, um, uh, to close out, I know that you sold your, your, um, you sold a few companies, right? And yeah. you made a, you, you made a lot of millions. Yeah. Can you uh, share a little bit of, of, of the details maybe yeah, uh, as sure. much as you can? And yeah. then how did that change? your life and Layla's life? Um, it, so the money didn't change. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you some things that, so the, we sold the, the, we sold two of the companies for 46.2 million. It was an all cash deal. There was no seller financing, no earn out, no consulting back, um, which, was, which was great, which was Jim Launch and Prestige Labs. We still retained 33% uh, of the company. So we still like, we still believe in the company. We just wanted to exit from the majority position so that we could do acquisition.com, which mm -hmm. is, was the goal. Uh, we sold Allen last year as well, uh, which we were, were not at liberty to say what the price was. I can say it was a $12 million top line software company um, what we had done in the 12 months prior. So we sold all three of those companies last year. Um, and the the thing is, is that like we, we've always run really high cash flow businesses. And to your point about um, living really pretty modestly compared to our income, um, Layla and I are already taken about 45 million in dividends out of the businesses just in the five years leading up to that. And so you know, the, 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 you know, the $46 million price tag uh, on the sale was not like life changing. Yeah. And I can say this is that when the wire came in, I did not feel the money that came in, but I did feel the stop in cash flow. And so you're just accustomed to a certain amount of cash flow that comes in. And for me, that's like almost my, like my thermostat for like how I'm doing. And all of a sudden that my big cash flow hose got dropped down to zero, but then I got this big lump, but I didn't feel the lump. And so I feel poorer now building acquisition.com than I did uh, with Jim Launch and Prestige, which is kind of interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying like, it, it was something that I didn't expect. Because most people, most people, um, they think about, oh, I'm going to sell, I'm going to get this much cash. Yeah. But then they don't realize the cash flow. You, yeah. You, you went through that. So, yeah. so is, is, is that, so that really is important. Yeah. Because then you have to take that money and then go recreate the cash flow you once had. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that, uh, so then it's like, and then you have to put an entirely different hat on because we've been like you and I too, both have, have been in the business game rather than the investment besting game. Right. I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I'm not a, ex, an experienced investor. I have a, by, by sheer amount of money that I've, I can invest. I am probably a high percentage investor by net worth, but investing is not how I made my money. Like I made money in mm -hmm. business. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then I translated it into cash. Um, and so still to this day, like we're like acquisition.com is the thing that's going to get us to a billion. The money that we took out is just put in really safe stuff that we don't want to lose. Like we don't need to take big risks there because like, this is how, this is how I'm going to make everything, um, to get past the billion. Um, and I say that often mostly cause it's like a fun goal and I'm dedicated to doing it. Um, but it doesn't really mean Can anything. you share of uh, acquisition yeah. like .com, the, the, the company? What, what do you exactly do yeah and 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 how does your your day look like now what, what's your typical you could answer that either last before or after but how yeah. is your what's your typical Monday through Sunday and Layla's typical Monday through Sunday for like for example us we're we're always together like we yeah. work out together work together yeah. have a life together yeah so I think it's kind of similar but I, I don't know maybe you guys separate and 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 do different like different things how, yeah. how, how is your days 
and and how and how, what is acquisition.com so so we take internet businesses from usually three ish you know three to ten million is the range that most of them come in at and we take them to you know 30 to 100 and that's kind of the incubator spot and it's always internet it's it's almost all been internet businesses that we've taken on um and it's really we have a it's called value acceleration method so vam is the, the kind of the shorthand for it um but we, we reverse out how we're going to get to 50 million in terms of what does the enterprise need to look like, right? What is the, what's the leadership need to look like? What, what team needs to be there? What strategy and what monetization vehicle does this need to be in to get the multiple that it's, that it's going to yield, right? And so we work backwards from that kind of, we put it as a 36 month goal um, back to the present. And then we start chipping away at it 12 weeks at a time. And so in the beginning, a lot of people come to acquisition.com. They expect that we're going to go go do a ton of acquisition. But the but most of the times we have to fix the back end. We have to get customer success metrics in place. We have to get, get them on a CRM that tracks everything from click to close end to end so we can have metrics to make decisions. Um, from there, usually we can, you know, two, three, five X the customer lifetime value. Um, and that's where we get the really huge outsized returns because all that drops to bottom line. And so then we get this massive boom in profit uh, that we can then, once we've improve the customer experience, increase the, the, the reputation uh, in the space. Then we have all this excess, you know, net free cash flow that's pump, getting pumped out of the business that we can then go spend on recruiting high level talent, go buying into networks or uh, acquisition channels that we couldn't otherwise afford. And so it's really, we, we go back to front. So we fix the back end, fix the product, fix the experience, get the customer suite, right? Make sure customer segmentation is being tracked appropriately so we can we can figure out where we have the most leverage uh, on profitability. We pull that as hard as we can. Once we've pulled all the levers we can on the back end, then we go and say, okay, well, we're getting, all of this is from cold calls, but do we have a cold email team? Do we have, do we have an ads team? Do we have a TikTok team? Do we have an organic team? Do we have a partnership and affiliates team? So like all of a sudden then we can start expanding the amount of uh, channels and, that we acquire and then, customers. And when you on. do this, is it just you and Layla or do you have like a CFO? Oh no, we have a team. Uh, yeah, yeah the, we have a and team. So everybody analyzes the business together. Yeah, exactly. So we have also, so like our CFO, for example, uh, she's, she's done 16 sell side exits. So she was on the team that did the sale. Um, the biggest one she sold was 15 billion. Uh, and then the last, uh, the, you know, she sold the last two companies with us. And then before that was 750 million, before that was a billion. And so she's very accustomed to walking through these transactions. Not and so, cheap, not cheap, right? No, not cheap. Uh, she's a partner. Um, and so what we do, and we have, you know, our, our portfolio operating partner, who's really specialized in customer success and doing kind of what I just outlined. Layla's really good at getting the operational team, the culture, uh, the leadership in place. Um, and so, and I, you know, I'm pretty good at pricing and product and, and getting the messaging right and whatnot. And so we think about it as like an on-demand C-suite is like a company comes in and let's say we know that a company at 10 million needs to look like this, right? And the company currently looks like this. Yeah. And so we match what our reality is to fix this so that it matches. So we basically copy and paste our expertise into the team so that it can get to that level. And then maybe at 10 million, we might have to swap out two and get two different people in or move two people above them unless they have the ability to grow. And so like, you know, at 3 million, you might need a, a staff accountant. At, at 10 million, you might need a controller. And at, you know, 30 million, you need a CFO. And so it's not just knowing like, okay, this is what we need to do to get there, but we, this is what we need to do right now in this business today to get to the next step. And so I think a lot of times it's, the people will take something from two steps forward and it's not the right sequence, even though it's the right move. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I, I want to respect your time, <laughs> Alex. Uh, one, one last question yeah. on the, when, I realized, uh, like you talked about controller, then CFO, yeah. COO, how important they are. Yeah. So when you start a business, you, you kind of want to have all the control and, yeah. uh, and, and you want to and you want to say the last word and everything. But then as, then then when you start doing good, yeah, then you want to let go of the control because you want to get smarter people than you to run it yeah. for you so that you don't have any control. Yeah. Um, I know you went through that whole process. So yeah. so what was is that how it is, how you see it? Yeah, I think entrepreneurship in general is a continuous and unrelenting relinquishing of control. And so like most people want freedom, right? So it's like we have these these polar opposite, these contrasting values that we are after. We're entrepreneurs, so we want absolute freedom. And then we also want absolute control and you can't have both. And so if you want true freedom, you have to give up control. If you want true control, you have to give up your freedom. Yeah. And so if everything's dependent on you, then everything's dependent on you. And so for me, I value freedom more than I value control. Um, and I think that uh, the leveling up that happens in entrepreneurship, at least in my journey, has been what my expectations of talent look like. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I remember when I got my first $50,000 a year employee and I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Because I was used to like $10 an hour, you know, so I was like, this is unbelievable. Like, yeah. this, is, this is where it's yeah. at. And then I remember I got my first $70,000 a year employee and I was like, this is where it's at. And then I got my first six-figure employee and I was like, okay, now we're talking. And then I got my first $250,000 a year employee and I was like, that's what's up. And then I got my first million-dollar a year employee and I was like, okay. And so I think that what happens is just like it's the continually leveling up what what talent exists. And I had a mentor say this to me. He said, you have to remember that the best talent isn't even on your team yet. Yeah, They're in the future. You haven't even hired them yet. And so I think that's been probably the biggest thing because if we're if it's a continuous process of relinquishing control, then it means it's a continuous process of of leveling up the people that you can give the control to. Alex, something that the audience doesn't know about you, something you never yeah. shared in, in anywhere. Man, uh, French is my first language. <laughs> Thank you, you Alex. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Hopefully, it was valuable for for your time as well. I had so many, so many more. I could have kept going, but I, I, I know, I know you, you got to go.